failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hi, my name is Dean Becker. Welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. Today we're going to hear from Chuck Thomas of the Interfaith Drug Policy Initiative. We'll hear from Mr. Philippe Lucas out of Victoria, Canada, on behalf of the Vancouver Island Compassion Society. But first up, we're going to hear from the author of Saying Yes in Defense of Drug Use, Mr. Jacob Solom. Uh, I'm Jacob Solom. I'm a senior editor at Reason Magazine, and uh, I also write a syndicated newspaper column. Jacob, I always uh, enjoy your writing. Uh, I saw a recent uh, post at uh, townhall.com, caught my attention. I was wondering if you'd uh, kind of elaborate on, on what you had written. Well, I was writing about the, the two marijuana initiatives that are on the ballot uh, next month in Nevada and in Colorado. And it looks like, judging from the poll numbers, they actually have a shot at passing. The one in Nevada would legalize not just possession of up to an ounce of marijuana, but also the production and sale of marijuana within Nevada. It would be interesting to see what actually happens in terms of uh, the federal government's response. Uh, and in Colorado, they don't, uh, wouldn't, the, the initiative wouldn't legalize sales, but it would remove all penalties for possession of up to an ounce. And I, I was looking at the strategies that are being employed by the campaigns for those two initiatives, which I think um, are, are innovative, and um, they, it looks like they've been effective in neutralizing um, some of the uh, the arguments that are traditionally used uh, for keeping marijuana illegal and for punishing people who use it. I, I, I especially enjoyed your thoughts about the the uh, stance being put forward by the opposition to to these initiatives. Let's talk about that. Well, one of, one of the funny things is that the uh, main organization that's fighting the marijuana initiative in Nevada is called the Committee to Keep Nevada Respectable. <laughs> which struck me because Nevada, of course, at least to people outside Nevada, is known for legalized gambling, for illegal prostitution, for uh, round-the-clock liquor service and strip clubs and that sort of thing. So uh, it's sort of striking to me that they think the w thing that will make uh, Nevada unrespectable is if they allow adults to use marijuana. Um, and that's, it says something about their image of marijuana, that they think that's the one thing that's really going to you know, put Nevada over the edge and <laughs> make it no longer respectable. In uh, Colorado, um, if you read some of the literature that's put out by the people who are opposing the initiative, uh, they seem quite convinced that they are fighting a bunch of degenerates who are out to uh, promote license and drug abuse and so forth. The key thing in the face of, of those arguments or those assumptions, really, um, is not to cede the moral high ground. Uh, in other words, not not to let them get away with, with saying we're on the side of right and decency and respectability and you guys uh, are a bunch of potheads, basically. Um, in, in Nevada, I think they've done an effective job of countering that by enlisting religious leaders. They've gotten more than 30 religious leaders to go on record uh, supporting this initiative that would legalize uh, possession of up to an ounce and also sales. Um, and that's quite impressive. It's not, if you look at the list of people, it's not just the usual suspects like Reform rabbis and Unitarian Universalist ministers. They also have uh, clergymen from some more conservative groups, such as Southern Baptists, Lutherans. And that's quite a coup, I think. And, it's, and, and, it, and it was a lot of hard work uh, 
by the Interfaith Drug Policy Initiative to bring these people on board, and it wasn't a matter of tricking them as the drug warriors would have. It was a matter of persuading them and presenting them with evidence and convincing them that even though they might disapprove of drug use, uh, it didn't make sense uh, to keep marijuana in the black market, that if you really want to regulate and control it and minimize the bad consequences of, of associated with the market, uh, you have to uh, allow it to be sold uh, in a legal environment where there's accountability. Uh, so that, that really goes a long way. When you have religious leaders who themselves do not approve of marijuana use standing up and uh, defending this initiative, I think that goes a long way to countering um, the uh, assumption of the other side that they're the ones who are respectable and moral. In the case of Colorado, their approach has been to emphasize uh, marijuana is not as dangerous as alcohol. Uh, and I think that that really is, is undeniable to anybody who looks at the evidence, at least by you know, several different measures, marijuana is not as dangerous. Uh, you, you, you can't, it's basically impossible to die of an, of acute, an acute overdose, unlike the case of alcohol, where that's fairly easy to do in terms of the con- contribution to long-term health problems from heavy consumption. Alcohol is clearly worse in terms of its contribution uh, to accidents and impairing ability to drive. It's clearly worse than marijuana. So, that, so I think they're on, on quite safe ground and solid scientific ground in asserting that, but uh, what they do with that is say, well, here you have an intoxicant that a lot of people prefer, that in fact is safer, has fewer problems associated with. It doesn't make sense that you're punishing adults for deciding they want to use this safer intoxicant rather than alcohol. And, and that argument, I think, has put the drug warriors uh, on the defensive and, and uh, forced them to, to address that issue. Why is there this, this seemingly senseless distinction in the law? And they really have not been able to explain it. Uh, they don't have a good argument for why there is this distinction. They just fall back on assertions like, well, uh, marijuana is not completely safe. It's, you know, it's not a totally benign drug, which is true. No drug is totally benign. No drug is without its risks. But like I said, there's no question that if you compare the risks with those of alcohol, uh, that they're, they're lower in the case of marijuana. Uh, so that, that they've, they've been sort of on the run, I think, uh, in Colorado in terms of justifying that distinction especially when they're talking about uh, actually punishing people for possession of personal use amounts. All right, we're speaking with Mr. Jacob Sullen, uh, writer for Reason Magazine. Uh, Jacob, you guys uh, deal with the drug war quite a bit, but you also take an in-depth, eyes-wide-open look at uh, much of what's going on in this world. Uh, Please send them to your website. Uh, The website is reason.com, and you can read uh, a lot of web-only content, including our group blog, Hit and Run, and also, each issue goes up there uh, a month or so after uh, it appears on newsstands. My name's Charles Thomas, and I'm the executive director of the Interfaith Drug Policy Initiative. Well, we're a national organization that works to mobilize religious leaders in support of more compassionate and less punitive drug policies. Ultimately, we believe that drugs should be a health issue rather than a crime, and that prohibition should be replaced by reasonable regulations. What we mostly do is work with the religious denominations and individual clergy and people of faith who already support the goals that are currently being advanced in various legislatures by the drug policy reform movement, things like allowing medical marijuana and repealing mandatory minimums. There was, uh, I thought, a rather profound uh statement put together just uh, about a week or ten days ago in Nevada. Tell us about that, please. 
Well, many of your listeners might already know that there's a ballot initiative in Nevada that's going to be voted on this November that would replace marijuana prohibition with reasonable regulations. And uh, what we did was went to Nevada. We we sent our associate director and uh, our new field director, and they they went there uh, and met with thirty. They met with numerous clergy, and they convinced 33 clergy from 15 different denominations to support allowing uh, you know, to support the ballot initiative. And uh, this, this was really remarkable because this is probably the first time in history that religious leaders have have united to be major players in in a movement that that would have such sweeping reform as as actually replacing marijuana prohibition mostly what we've done before this is worked on issues like mandatory minimums and medical marijuana and issues where there's already a lot of widespread support among major religious denominations but in Nevada uh, we really needed to have as many sit-down meetings with with these clergy as possible to really help them understand why regulating marijuana actually best serves their their concerns and their interests. So let's talk about uh, some of the thoughts put forward there in Nevada. The main point is that marijuana prohibition is causing far more harm than good. It's not preventing anyone from having access to marijuana, but instead it puts the marijuana trade in the hands of violent criminals and otherwise punishes people and wastes valuable law enforcement resources and creates all kinds of havoc in the community that that otherwise wouldn't exist if marijuana were available through some sort of regulated system. And what they're proposing in Nevada is, is a system with very strict controls and where the taxes from the marijuana would would go towards drug treatment and general education, things that could actually make people's lives better rather than just wasting money to punish people and create a violent criminal underground. Now, you uh, were featured as one of the authors in a recent book edited by Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Pot Politics. Uh, Tell us uh, about uh, your involvement with that book. Sure. Well, as I mentioned before, our organization works largely with religious denominations that already support some of the marijuana law reform and other drug policy reform goals that are currently being advocated in state legislatures and in Congress by other groups in the drug policy reform movement, like Drug Policy Alliance and Marijuana Policy Project. So through that work, uh, we have become aware of uh, quite a few favorable positions on, on some of these hot topic issues. Uh, among religious denominations. So what I thought would be useful and interesting would be to dig up the positions dealing with marijuana from the 25 largest Christian denominations in the U.S., as well as uh, the four main movements of Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and some other religious groups that that I thought might have some interesting positions, Um, the Quakers or the National Council of Churches, Unitarian Universalists, and so forth. So looking at 40 different major religious groups in the United States, uh, we were pleasantly surprised to find out that there's far more support for drug policy reform than there is opposition. Uh, The the level of support depends on uh, just how sweeping the particular reform proposal is. For example, 
uh, on the question of uh, what I define as uh, legal. If you look at the existing policy statements, four or five religious denominations actually support uh, legalizing uh, marijuana in particular, and th that is to say allowing some means through which users can legally obtain marijuana. Um, a lot of them don't specify exactly what types of regulations, but but in general, uh, to give an example, the Unitarian Universalist Association says that marijuana should be treated just like alcohol. Uh, now, there are seven denominations that explicitly oppose legalization, uh, but most don't really have a position on it one way or the other. Uh, what they do have positions on, though, when you start to look into uh, some more modest proposals, such as decriminalization, and that is to say simply removing criminal penalties for people who possess marijuana, only two denominations of the 40 uh, explicitly oppose decriminalization, whereas uh, at least 12, possibly depending on how the language of their positions is interpreted, as many as 16 of these major religious groups support decriminalization. And when you finally get to what we categorize as other, and that is things like opposing mandatory minimums or supporting restoring college aid to drug offenders, zero religious groups explicitly oppose those types of reform, whereas 26 of them have official statements supporting things like repealing mandatory minimums. So, uh, and, and these include the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the United Methodist Church, uh, groups such as uh, Chuck Colson's Conservative Prison Fellowship Ministries, uh, a lot of mainstream denominations really across the board um, support some degree of drug policy reform. And we don't see any religious groups that are saying, yes, there should be mandatory minimum sentences. Judges shouldn't be allowed to consider the facts of each case. People should be given decades in prison with, with no additional consideration by the judge as to uh, any culpability and so forth. So if, if, you look at, if you look at our research, which is compiled in this book uh, called Pot Politics, Marijuana and the Costs of Prohibition, uh, you can look at uh, the, the first of my two chapters in the book. Uh, it, has, it has a chart that, that shows uh, what, what the denomination's positions on these on these issues are, uh, followed by a section that has polling data about what individual members of these denominations feel about different levels of reform. Then in the next chapter, uh, this is the first time ever that all of these positions have been compiled. Any favorable or unfavorable position that we've been able to find from these 40 religious groups are all quoted extensively uh, throughout chapter 13 of the book. So whether you're a Unitarian or a Catholic or uh, Assemblies of God or a Southern Baptist or whatever your denomination might be, uh, 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 whether you're Jewish or a Buddhist, you can, you can read through here and see direct quotes from these religious denominations as to what the positions uh, should be, on uh, what the policy should be regarding marijuana. If a religion says it's a sin to use marijuana, that doesn't mean that it's the government's job to punish people for sin. The government should be protecting people from hurting each other or putting others at significant risk. But that doesn't mean that the government should be punishing people for what they put 
into their own bodies. And more and more religious denominations are realizing that uh, when there's a ballot initiative to look at a, at, a, at a particular way of tightly regulating and controlling and taxing marijuana and taking it out of the criminal market, most clergy are free to look at the evidence and think about it and pray about it and make their own decisions. Well, we've been speaking with Mr. Charles Thomas, who heads up the Interfaith Drug Policy Initiative. I appreciate your work, sir. Would you uh, please give us your website? Sure, that's www.idpi.us, and the IDPI stands for Interfaith Drug Policy Initiative, idpi.us. And again, the book is called Pot Politics, Marijuana and the Costs of Prohibition, and it's one of the, it's actually the only source uh, in which you can find all of the marijuana-related positions uh, of the 40 most important religious denominations and other groups in the United States. And, uh, and and anyone who's interested in finding ways to utilize supportive people of faith or clergy or what have you in, in their communities in order to uh, help change the laws, join our organization and, and help bring about more just and compassionate marijuana policies. Before we go to our last guest on this program, I want to make note of the fact that my 85-year-old father doesn't work directly with Chuck Colson, but he's very much involved in prison ministries. also wanted to make note of the fact I performed my first marriage this past Friday, and that this coming Sunday I'll be giving the sermon at the Unitarian Church in Stafford, Texas. My name is uh, Philippe Lucas. I'm founder and director of the Vancouver Island Compassion Society and Canadians for Safe Access and a graduate research fellow with the Center for Addiction Research at British Columbia. For the listeners who may not know about the Vancouver Island Compassion Society, tell us uh, what you guys do. We're a nonprofit uh, research supply and advocacy uh, medical marijuana organization. Um, we've just celebrated our seventh anniversary uh, on October 1st of this year. And we're currently helping about 610 critically and chronically ill Canadians gain access to a safe source of uh, medical cannabis, as well as uh, producing and uh, participating in more medical marijuana research than any other organization in Canada. Though it's uh, nebulous, it, it doesn't really compare to the situation in the U.S. You guys have a, uh, if I dare say, a wink and a nod from the Canadian government. Is that a fair assumption? No, I think uh, it's fair to, to assume that the Canadian government is doing their best to close down compassion societies, to uh, uh, to drive us out of business, and to uh, make our lives as difficult as possible. So I think the relationship between the federal government and compassion clubs and societies in Canada is very similar to the federal relationship uh, that we see in the U.S. as well. Um, despite that, um, we've been able, about six or seven compassion clubs in Canada have been able to operate basically with the support and volition of their, uh, of their local communities. Let's talk about um, the expertise you have. You have been called to uh, testify on behalf of marijuana over the years, correct? I have. I've um, spoken before the Senate Special Committee on Illegal Drugs, and I've been invited to present to the House of Commons Special Committee on the Non-Medical Use of Drugs and participated on a number of consultations uh, regarding medical cannabis that have been uh, organized and uh, paid for by uh, Health Canada and the Office of Cannabis Medical Access, which is now known as the Medical Marijuana Access Division. Um, unfortunately, uh, since this new conservative government took over, we're seeing uh, um, further resistance to 
uh, opening up this program. And in fact, over the last uh, month alone, uh, the conservative government has slashed a potential $4 million that would have gone to support uh, for federal support of medical cannabis research, mostly clinical research. And um, on top of that, we've seen that uh, the federal production facility, which is located in Flint Lawn, Manitoba, operated by a company called Prey Plant Systems, has been uh, uh, has had their contract extended despite continuing and ongoing concerns about the quality and safety of that product. Uh, that contract has been extended for another 14 months and uh, for $2 million. And so it means that over the last six years, Canada spent over $8 million to supply medical cannabis to only about 300 end users who have chosen this source uh, for their medical marijuana, making it about the most expensive uh, cannabis uh, anywhere in the world. And uh, it is the, the prohibition that really leads to the increased price, uh, no matter how you look at it, right? No, uh, the government can produce this cannabis uh, uh, you know, for about the same price as producing tomatoes, so we're not sure why the uh, federal government keeps charging such a high amount for the cannabis it produces. But as far as compassion clubs are concerned, yeah, unfortunately, it's because of uh, cannabis prohibition and, uh, and enforcement, that means that our, our, our cannabis is is uh, more expensive than it should be to medical marijuana end users. But although the rest of our medications are covered through um, uh, provincial uh, and federal uh, health care, uh, medical marijuana, even for legal users, isn't recognized right now. and isn't uh, So there's no cost coverage going on from any level of government right now. From what I'm hearing, then, they are willing to uh, fund this uh, prairie plant systems to produce an inferior grade of marijuana. And yet, uh, if I heard you right, they're also unwilling to provide funds for additional research to uh, find better strains and so forth? That's absolutely correct. And, uh, and in fact, um, Health Canada, just over a year ago, I guess two years ago, started an advisory committee. Um, it was called the Expert Advisory Committee for the Medical Marijuana Access Division. It was a group of researchers and uh, doctors familiar with the use of medical cannabis that were supposed to advise in research initiatives uh, put forward by the federal government, as well as what conditions could be considered uh, uh, legitimate uh, for the use of medical cannabis. Uh, I've just found out today that that particular body has been disbanded. Uh, it, it was part of the funding cuts to the medical marijuana research program. And so currently uh, Health Canada um, is either sending a signal that this drug has been studied enough, this substance, this herb has been studied enough, and therefore we don't need to pursue any more research into uh, the safety and efficacy of medical cannabis. It's accepted and we should move forward with it. Or I suppose they're saying that they don't care about an evidence-based policy in regards to medical cannabis, um, and therefore they're going to slash all the funding to research, including uh, uh, this advisory committee that could have been very helpful in, in directing this program in a better direction. If you will, kind of give me a, a heck a weather report. I, here in the U.S., uh, many of the compassion clubs, the uh, uh, the coffee shops, if you will, that that on the West Coast that that sell medical cannabis have been uh, raided over the past few weeks. And I've heard stories that some of the uh, I don't know, I'll call them smoke easies in Canada have been raided over the last few months as well. That kind of give us a comparison, if you will. Yeah, in the Toronto area, there have been a few raids on uh, more recreational uh, facilities than anything else. Um, I, I think that um, what we're seeing right now is an entrenchment of uh, unscientific, un, uh, uncompassionate policies by both our governments. 
I can't imagine. A, 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 there was a recent poll in Maclean's magazine, which is the equivalent in Canada of Times Magazine. It's our national news news magazine that suggests that 93% of Canadians support the medical use of cannabis. So this isn't a, a hot potato issue. I don't think you can get Canadians uh, to agree on anything at that high a level. So medical marijuana might be unique in that sense. I know that the levels of support in the U.S. are about the same. So we see that the governments right now, our federal governments, are are way, way, way behind the uh, the actual voters in, in their consideration of medical cannabis. And I think that the upcoming election in the U.S. on November 7th is going to show that because, once again, we've got a number of municipalities and states who are about to uh, uh, pass medical marijuana legislation as well as lowest priority initiatives for the recreational use of cannabis. And um, I think it's just a matter of, of time before the groundswell gets big enough that uh, the federal government has no choice but to reexamine its, its policies in regards to both the med- medical and, and personal use of cannabis. All right. Once again, we are speaking with Mr. Philippe Lucas of the Vancouver Island Compassion Society. Philippe, uh, you, you reference uh, 93% of Canadians uh, see a need for change. And I, I know in the U.S. it's at least in the 70s, some states 80s and 90s. <coughs> what, what would you suggest... Uh, how are we going to break the uh, the back of this this ninety something year old war here in the U.S.? Well, sadly, although I'm a big believer in advocacy and education, um, we see that whether it's in Canada or the U.S., the major contentious uh, social issues that have been re- addressed uh, over the last hundred years, everything from minority rights, gay marriage, um, uh, uh, women's rights to vote, and women uh, equality battles. All of these major contentious social issues have not been settled uh, by our federal government or because of goodwill of our uh, legislators. They've been settled by our courts. And uh, more and more I'm seeing that, uh, unfortunately, that's, that's probably the way that it's going to happen with medical marijuana. The only progress that we've made here in Canada in, in uh, establishing medical cannabis uh, legislation has been through the federal courts. And, and right now the Vancouver Island Compassion Society is gearing up for a constitutional challenge of our federal medical marijuana program that's likely to take place in early 2007 in the B.C. Supreme Court. Um, we're happy to, to thank uh, the Marijuana Policy Project in the U.S. for supporting that challenge, which is likely to be our best chance of uh, either striking down or making significant improvements to the federal medical marijuana program here in Canada in the coming years. Now, Philippe, you are also um, a field general, a colonel at the very least within uh couple of other organizations. Uh, notably, I'd like to talk about Drug Sense and Mapping. Please tell us about those two organizations. Absolutely. I've been working with Drug Sense now for about six years. First as uh, an editor of uh, the newsletter. I, was, I, I edited the hemp and cannabis section for, for the last six years. Now, to give that up this year, unfortunately, it's being taken over by uh, my good friend Deb Harper, who's doing a great job with it. And I've been director of communications at that organization for three or four years now. And uh, while DrugSense continues to be uh, the real uh, Internet engine for the war on drugs in both Canada and the U.S., and I dare say internationally, uh, with an archive of uh, 200,000 uh, news stories over the last, uh, drug-related news stories over the last six years, and, um, and services uh, that range from media services to send out presses and, and press releases all over North America, to uh, uh, ongoing support for um, uh, the website building and Internet uh, presence of, the, of, of uh, drug policy reform organizations in both Canada and the U.S. Um, there's no organization right now that's uh, 
that's uh, doing more online to end the war on drugs, and uh, and it's been a, a great organization to work with, and it's it's one that, like many organizations in Canada and the U.S., is always struggling for funding and and could really use some support. And so, if any of your listeners uh, would care to check us out at uh, www.drugsense.org, I encourage them to do so if they haven't already. Check out our, our archive of news stories at mapinc.org. And uh, please uh, write us a check, make a donation, so we keep keep up with the great work and and move us all a little closer towards policies that are based on science, reason, and compassion, rather than drug policies based on fear and prejudice and misunderstanding. Well, I hope you enjoyed this century of lies. Uh, before we go, I want to make note of the fact we just picked up affiliate number sixty-five, KIGC, there in the heartland in Oskaloosa, Iowa. And as always, I remind you, there is no truth, justice, logic, scientific fact, or medical data to support this drug war. It is a sham. We've been duped. The drug lords run both sides of this equation. Please do your part to help end this madness. Visit our website, nprohibition.org. Prohibido estaki valesco. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston.